Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll discuss how organizations can build unique connections and offer exceptional experiences in an increasingly digital world. One of the few brand differentiators available today is to build memorable and repeatable experiences in an increasingly distractible and time-starved world. Unlike in the past, when many of these experiences could be built in a one-to-one tactile world, digital delivery changes the game. I'm very excited to have Jim Gilmore on the show today. Jim is the co-author, along with Joe Pine, of one of the best business books of the 20th century, The Experience Economy. This must-read book has recently been updated for the 21st century, making it even more relevant for the digital age. One of the best parts of the book, from my perspective, is the vast number of detailed case studies to provide context for the recommendations made. Today's podcast is the first in-person episode I have done since my podcast with Steve Wozniak that I did last year in Budapest. Unlike that interview, today's episode is being recorded in the Evergreen Studios in both Jim Gilmore's and my hometown of Cleveland. So welcome to the show, Jim. Uh, It's great to finally meet you in person. I I feel like I already know you having read your book more than a couple times and following you and Joe Pine on social media and through your writings. To start a discussion today and a bit of a backgrounder, I thought it would be good to first, with the fact that I first became aware of your research and findings and the importance of customer experience, when I read your Harvard Business Review article back in 1998, I think it was, and then your book came out in uh, the following year and, and is still a bestseller. Can you provide a little bit of a description around the focus of your book? Well, the main argument of the book or contention is that experiences are a distinct form of economic output. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you go back 200 years ago, you had an agrarian economy that was based on extracting commodities, commodities being the economic offering, stuff basically extracted from animals, vegetables, or minerals. And then we shifted to an industrial economy where the dominant form of economic output was physical things, goods. And then in, in the starting in the 1950s in the United States, uh, a shift away from uh, goods and an industrial economy to a service economy where people left the factory to go into the service region just they had previously left the farm to go into the factory. So what we articulated way back when is we detected that another shift was taking place, that just as we had gone from a a great economy to an industrial economy, industrial economy to service economy, that we're now shifting to an experienced economy. Now, other people talk about experiential value, but for us to say you, you could affix a price to an experience, that's not just experiential, but just like going, paying to go to a movie, paying to go to a sporting event, which have been along for, for some time, going, paying to go to the theater, that other industries, other businesses could similarly think about not just the events they're staging, but also to put a price tag and charge explicitly for the time people spend in places or events. And since we wrote the book, you know, at the time, we were hard-pressed to find examples, but now I can't even keep up. Well, it's interesting because, you know, again, it's hard to imagine that this was, the book was written in 1999. Published in 1999, written for three years <laughs> prior to that. It took three years to pull the thing together. Well, it's interesting because it's very much like a previous guest of mine, Don Peppers, where I, I go, this book is timeless and in many cases has to be read because the the lessons learned, while some of them come back from 1998, 1999, 
they haven't been learned completely. There's still so many examples of us missing the boat with regard to building great experiences. I assume you're referring to one one future. And actually, I don't know why Don and Martha Rogers don't refresh that book with new examples because every single principle they have in that book is spot on. And most notably, they said, don't have customers come to product, take product to customers. Everything being delivered, home delivery now, is exactly what they presciently foresaw. And I tell people, read the book and forget all the references to technology because it refers to fax back services and so forth. But from a principle standpoint, it's spot on. There's an analogy of that book with ours in that sometimes business writers, business books are penalized for not being recent. And I tell people, don't penalize me for having written something that's enduring and still relevant. It's so far away from flavor of the month. And I think whether you've read it previously like yourself or are reading it for the first time, hopefully the new preface that accompanies this edition of the book provides a new portal, if you will, through which to look at that content, that's still relevant content, but through an assessment of our contemporary time. So that's really what we've done in this edition is take a deep dive assessment of where we're at with the experiences and then based on that, say, now go revisit the content that we wrote way back when. Well, as with Don's book, yours and Joe's book, it's interesting that if the industry, all industries, had learned the lessons that you were trying to teach. Some businesses would still be around. <laughs> uh, well, and, and you'd have to write another book. The reality is the lessons have not been learned. And to the degree that a lot of companies we talk about – did not change their experiences with the time to reflect what really is wanted by the consumer. A great example that I reference is the difference between Walmart and the combination of Sears and Kmart. One institution said, we just need to add more product and get efficiencies. The other one said, we need to have a diversion experience available that if a person wanted to visit a store, they could still do it. But if they wanted to do what I call an Amazon-type experience, we're going to be competitive in that space. And it's not always the best best strategy to duplicate what you're doing. In Walmart, they certainly have the resource to do so. But even in the examples that you gave in your book, and there's so many from Nike to Disney to even those such as Sharper Image and such, some succeeded, some didn't. But I think you look back and you say, they transformed with the times. They didn't just sit back and say, we have a good experience. We don't want to change. Your assessment's spot on. I really like the way you articulated that. It's, you know, why didn't people get it? I mean, it's so – and an example you cite there, the uh, Sears and Kmart examples, it reminds me, I've often said that for one large entity to acquire a second large entity is nothing more than a, a last-ditch effort to preserve the current paradigm. I mean, you're desperate. You're simply going to rely upon scale, right? If we get bigger, we can hold on longer. And what a horrible way to use uh, – I mean, if you have to go acquire something with whatever cash or capital you have, clearly you don't have any in existing ideas of your own in which you want to invest in. Well, and it's interesting. And we can talk about employee experiences some other time. But if you look at it, the difference is an internal focus. I want to make better economies. I want to cut costs. And an external focus which says – we can build a differentiator based on how people feel about our product. And again, when you look at your book, one of the things that goes throughout the book is that there's a financial return to this. This is not just doing things to be nice. This is not just doing things to make people feel good. It's that you can actually monetize a good customer experience, correct? Absolutely. You're spot on. Your comments uh, suggest this, though, that 
that's not a new idea to, to be focused on the customer, be focused externally. Our book is really about how to look at customers differently and how to look at customer needs differently. Joe Pye and I often say it starts with mindset. I mean, if you haven't gotten some established principles like be customer focused, right, that the purpose of a business, as Peter Drucker said, is to create a customer, our message falls on deaf ears. I often say it's people who already get it who get the most out of our book, who are already are inclined for this. And in fact, I remember the head of Universal Creative soon after the Harvard Business Review article came out said, you know, I didn't learn anything new about what to do from you guys, but I love your language. I think part of the success of the book is we actually gave a vocabulary, a lexicon to people who intuitively had a predisposition towards recognizing about human performance as a, a play and things. And we just gave a richer, deeper and structured way to help people in some ways understand what they were already doing. And it's interesting because we do research for the Digital Banking Report, and we've done research on customer experience quite a bit. There's not an institution out there that doesn't have customer experiences either being number one or number two goal of the organization. It's a matter of how you deploy that. So it's like apple pie. It's great. Everybody's going to say they like it. Almost everybody's going to say they like it. Everybody wants to say they're trying to develop a good customer experience. They will also put it within every financial report that they put out there. That said, the, the challenge is how do you really deploy it? So in my case at Wells Fargo Bank, I, I talk about the fact that Wells Fargo's had my account for 15 years. They handle my account from a transactional basis very well. The challenge I have is as much as I know they know about me, they don't deploy that in a way that lets me know they know about me. And as a result, I, I have an example from a couple of weeks ago where they asked me, can you tell us what level of balances you'd like us to notify you that your balances are low? And I shake my head and I say, I'm sorry, you've had my account for 15 years. You know the timing of every one of my transactions. There's a lot of consistency. You have enough data and analytics to figure out what that is. My balance desire on the first of the month is not the same as it is on the 12th of the month. And you know that better than I do. And again, when we look at your book and we look at not just the importance, but the priority of actually doing something about it, how does this transfer to the digital environment, because your book was written before the digital environment was really in place. How do you see that being deployed in today's world? Yeah, I actually wrote the book at the very beginnings of the dot-com rise and didn't get sucked into all the thinking that came crumbling down. We make this point in the new preface to the re-release book in hardcover, is that information about someone to use to calculate a better average. In the case, example, you say, got a lot of information. Let's use it to analyze what one question we should ask all customers. There's a difference between that and information from customers to be used for those same customers. And when there's issues of privacy, which Don Peppers and Martha Rogers wrote about in their book as well, you're much more inclined to establish a relationship with some entity that's using information about you and from you for your own benefit on a one-to-one -one basis. But people still have this mass production mindset that in their heart of hearts that like to do one standard thing for everybody. Henry Ford, it says, especially in services, you talk about retail, any banking services, retail banking, it's an intangible offering, right? But you still bring a mass production mindset as if you're making a physical good. And every customer coming down the line is like, like an, a physical good coming down the Ford assembly line. Services are inherently customizable because they're intangible. And an experience, by definition, is a personal event. It's the, it's the time a person spends in a place or event. It has to be one-on-one. -on -one. It has to be personalized. It, it has to be customized. And anytime you treat 
a customer as if they're the customer. And by the way, there is no the customer. Joe and I have to write repeatedly that you should serve individual customers. We'll recognize that's a redundancy. The only reason we have to use the adjective individual to qualify the word customer is because customers aren't treated like individuals. They're rolled up into segments, into niches, into averages. We have the technologies today to mass customize. Because we talk about digital, one of the fundamental properties of, of digitization, it's essentially reduces every offering down to a zero or a one. I mean, theoretically. But here's the mistake people often make, and maybe one of the reasons they shy away from pursuing this. People equate customization, particularly mass customization, as doing everything for everyone. That's not the case. You go broke doing that. It's identifying the few dimensions. I even challenge clients the one dimension that if you were to customize it would be of the greatest value. You know, it was actually Stan Davis who coined the term mass customization. I met my co-author and business partner, Joe Pine, by reading his book, Mass Customization. The term was actually coined by Stan Davis. And in an article that Joe wrote in Harvard Business Review, I think it was called Making Mass Customization Work, Stan Davis wrote a letter to the editor in response to that article. And he said something that was really, he asked and answered a question that I think provides brilliant business wisdom. Stan Davis asked, what and where in a company should they customize? And his answer was, a company should customize as much as necessary and as little as possible. That is to identify those dimensions of your offerings in which there's great standard deviation in which the way people want it actually offered, and you're giving it to them one standard way. There's value to be had in, in developing product and process architecture to deliver unique Again, that's the power of the digital realm is to customize. That's the fundamental opportunity that too many organizations are still neglecting. It's not like the resources aren't available. I guess that's the thing that's most frustrating. It's eminently doable. In in (laughs) a digital world, you not only can completely customize the way people receive information, but you have so much insight right now that you can customize and formalize a process in a monetized way that can solve the problem of both reduced cost and improved experience. Just got back from Shenzhen, China, where some of the most amazing things are being done from the standpoint of data, analytics, and deployment, where the one consistent we saw across five different organizations, six different organizations we visited, was they're using data to avoid the privacy trap by providing a value transfer that's greater than the concern around privacy. So, we talked about the Amazon. Amazon the fact that we're paying $120 a year for the ability to shop is kind of insane until you realize there's no experience like it. And we all make excuses for why we spend that money. But in a digital world, they deploy data in such a way that every day I'm reminded why I like Amazon and nothing comes out better. We addressed Amazon Prime in the new preface and that it really functions as what we talked about as, a, as an admission fee. It's an admission fee to get access to a portfolio of of services. Now, there's some possibility Amazon might go down the direction of Facebook and Google, who does not charge that because Google and Facebook doesn't treat their users as customers. It's all the advertisers who are their their customers. But in Amazon, if they go down that path, that I think that'll be the wrong path that they will take. They've got a different relationship with people because you are explicitly paying to have that kind of relationship with them. But Amazon also has a lot of data as well about enormous amount of about individuals. So the key will be what will they do with that over time? What businesses will they decide to continue to enter using that information? Well, it's interesting because it's used in one way when you return things. Like when you want to return something, 
they will send you the new product before you even return what you're going to return. Why? Because they don't care if you do it. Honestly, they've already done the credit analysis or the buyer's analysis to say, you know what, we're okay if you don't return it, to be honest with you, but we're going to over-deliver and say, what company would give you the product without any question before you've even returned the one you want to return? We trust you. And now we're from our episode sponsor, Auriga. We're going through a very interesting time right now. Branches are being closed. Many offices that are open may have limited hours. Many services are by appointment only and staff are working from home and consumers are being told to cut on essential travel. This makes a very interesting time because as we move from physical to digital, it's very important to keep the human touch. So how do we humanize the digital experience? Ariga is a leading supplier of software and technical solutions for the banking and payments industry. It is also a major provider of innovative omnichannel solutions to banks and other financial institutions. Ariga solutions are founded on modern architecture that improve time to market while lowering costs, also protecting critical devices from cyber attacks and building a long-term competitive advantage. It goes without saying that banking is already in a whirlwind of change. And now that the pandemic is making more people change how they bank, it is important more than ever that we take the physical branch and make it so that we can humanize the digital experience to replicate what consumers were used to. Ariga wants to champion both the bank branch and the consumer and put the human connection back into banking through innovative, integrated omnichannel solutions. To learn more about Ariga, visit www.arigaspa.com. That's www.arigaspa.com. And now back to our interview. When it comes to trust, isn't trust an experience differentiator in the marketplace today? Well, I like that. I haven't thought much about trust and relationship experiences, but put it this way, that if you buy a ticket to go see some theatrical production or to go see some movie, let's say someone went to the new, you know, Star Wars or Batman or whatever, they don't read the script ahead of time to make sure the movie is going to be okay before I go. Now, some people do read a book before they go, and they're usually disappointed with the movie if they've done that. You trust, you know, in some ways, paying an admission fee, if you don't know what's behind it, is trusting that you are going, that the provider is going to be giving you something that you're going to value and enjoy. Unlike goods and services where you, you can find you, – you research and find out everything that's going to be, we started our own firm's business-to-business event we called Think About. We ran it for 20 years. I remember the first year when people working for us said, Jim, you have to talk to this person. He's not going to come to the event unless he knows exactly, you know, what the event's going to be because we, we were so vague on what the two-day experience was going to be. And – I told him, look, if, if you're looking for an agenda, you're exactly the kind of person we don't want. We want someone, in fact, over time, I used to call it our Raging Fan Festival, is people's like, I don't care what Pine and Gilmore do, I know I'm going to like it, right? Because we had earned the chance to, look, I'll pay the admission fee, I'll come in, and I have high probability I'm going to enjoy anything you give me. So actually, I have never thought before, thanks for the question, that an admission fee also inherently serves as a function of trust. I trust I'm going to see a good baseball game. I trust I'm going to see a good movie, a good concert, and so forth. Well, it's, it's also, when you look at Amazon, it's why people rank Amazon very high on we would trust them as a bank. Now, they've never been in banking, but there's something to be said for the fact that what you've built from a standpoint of 
experience for me gives you leeway on how I'll treat you otherwise. Another example, and we talk about movies, you know, for me at least, I know there's not a Denzel Washington movie I wouldn't mind seeing and when I'm in airplanes way too much. I'll immediately go to that if I haven't seen it. And his reason is because I can trust the fact that this person is going to put a performance together, Tom Hanks, some of these other actors, they go, even if it's a bad performance, I'll probably enjoy watching them do their thing, even if the movie itself isn't bad. But when you talk about financial services, you know, you look and say, okay, they're becoming more and more commodities as far as what they do. And the fintech firms, the technology-based financial firms that are coming out are serving the individual experiences of certain segments of customers. How do you see organizations such as financial institutions surviving or thriving the future when you look at the whole experience perspective? That's a good question. I think like software, information technology, I think financial institutions have to understand that to some extent their businesses run orthogonal to commodities, goods, services, experiences because they're an enabler. Financial services enables agrarian economy, enables the industrial economy, enables the service economy. So I think more than just providing services, any financial institution has to think about how doing business with them can their customers' money be leveraged to create greater wealth or have a richer life. And perhaps they should play more of an active role. I think banks could think about paying, well, there's different financial services, but clearly explicitly venture capitals plays that role of creating the future wealth generators. But banks perhaps could do more of that just even on a, for individual families and individuals. In a way, sort of democratizing the kind of interaction that the wealthy gets from a venture capitalist. At Strategic Horizons, when you meet with companies and you work with them on building better experiences, what do you find as being the biggest challenges with organizations you meet with in embracing what you're selling, for lack of a better term? It starts with mindset. You have to have a champion. Uh, somebody senior has to support it. There's a lot of people trying to do skunk works. There's a lot of people middle, higher upper middle management that get at doing things, but ultimately they struggle. They get frustrated because if somebody from a senior level doesn't create some space, some comfort zone to pursue this, that's uh, absolutely necessary. I also think it's the human side of things. I think when it comes to the design of environments, people are making great progress at that. Somehow we're simultaneously making the mistake thinking the environment is the experience. No, it's just the set. It's just the place in which experiences take place. Commodities, goods, and services exist outside of people. Experiences exist inside of people. And now they have those experiences in places, physical or virtual or digital. And I think we'll get that part down. It's the human aspect, which I think also helps fuel the flight to digital thing, is so many of the human interaction experiences are so horrible that not talking to a person is an improvement. Now, I think that's a sad indictment about the experiences that we have in physical time and space. And to some extent, and my co-author and I differ a little bit on this, Joe's much more about using the digital to augment the physical and the other direction as well when it comes to like augmented reality. I'm still holding on to the promise that the physical realm is in competition with the digital. We write the new preface that every single business today has the same number one competitor, and that's the smartphone. If you do not engage people in the moment in time and space, they can leave you instantaneously with the swipe of a screen or the tap of a screen. And I, I still think there's great opportunity to have relationships in physical space. Yes, digital will play a role in that, but I worry a little bit about running too quickly to that realm because time is the currency of experiences. And it comes down to 
where do you choose to spend your time? And if we're increasingly spending our time with a screen, I don't need to go Orwellian on you, but I guess it would actually be more, more Huxley with Brave New World to talk about, again, but the marketplace will determine where people want to spend their time. But I'm, I tend to be more of an advocate of trying to create the physical realm in which we dwell to be a better experience because so much of it is awful. So in the digital world then, unlike the physical world, the importance of frequency of experience becomes greater than simply the level of experience. So Disney, I'm going to remember that experience for three, four, five years. My bank, I won't remember it four minutes, but— Unless something goes wrong. Exactly. (laughs) The easiest way to stage a memorable event is to provide bad service. So nothing we write about means you can walk away from the highest standard of excellence with services. It's just not differentiating. Right. But so what we get to is I sometimes say, look at where your grease spot is on your phone to see what apps you engage with the most. And actually, frequency of engagement becomes a very key component of digital experience, does it not? There's definitely a correlation. I mean, I haven't studied this, but there's the economic law of the law of diminishing marginal utility. If I was pursuing a PhD, I might be intrigued with, is that happening at a more accelerated pace with experiences? And there's been there, done that. So to get a customer to come back time and time again, to spend time with you time and time again, is a metric. Because we do live in an age of been there, done that, don't need to go again. In fact, people generally want to spend less time in the procurement of goods and services while they'll simultaneously spend time and experiences that engage them. And often spending more time means more interactions, a greater frequency. Which to a degree is what Amazon's trying to do with their expansion of their marketplace on a continuous basis is that the more ways you touch me, be it shopping at a Whole Foods or watching one of my movies or engaging with me with one of my books or shopping, it makes it so that you become more reliant on me. Now, that's also why the government has their eye on companies like Google and Amazon and saying, is it for the common good? They're becoming the digital Sears. I mean, you know, Sears is a dinosaur. It's on its last leg, but, you know, it won't topple over quite yet. But I still think one of my favorite books I read was a book called The Big Store about Sears. I think there's so many lessons to be learned, even for anybody in retail, retail banking, just to hear the history. I mean, they went and acquired Dean Witter. They went and acquired Allstate. I mean, Amazon's doing the same thing. They're sort of acquiring everything. It'll be inter- I mean, that's a complex problem. It'll be interesting to see how they do over time. That's going to be a management issue. But I think people are coming in their turf. I mean, not just Amazon you know, offering financial services or Apple now offering financial services. I mean, just take what a large segment of retail banking, which is a home mortgage. I mean, Zazzle, I think stock is like in the last six months, like 50% because they've now realized they have such intelligence now about the marketplace of buying and selling that they can now decide we'll go buy that home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. and, then, and then resell it ourselves. Well, that's not only a threat to uh, realtors. Wait till they get into financing that home when they resell. Now, clearly, we got legal things about who could be a bank, but— But again, data becomes an ability to get into logistics. Right. So it becomes a great asset. Absolutely right. Which is, which is you know, why, you know, you could Amazon in their logistics process. That's why them and FedEx went head-to-head is that there's a real value to the logistics, and Uber is probably a bigger competitor to Amazon than FedEx. You know, as we look at the future— what do you see as the future of the experience economy? To answer where it's going, let's get the trajectory right. The release of the experience economy is actually a hardcover edition of the updated edition. And in the updated edition, in the preface of that book, we outline five different directions where we've detected experiences have come. So why don't we do that and then see where the trajectory goes from there? So first we talk about is experiences in name only. 
You know this is happening, so you just call what you already do and experience, but change nothing in your operations. The retail banking experience, like, but you're still doing everything. You, I have a client who basically hasn't been twice a year to do nothing more than tell me about all the new experiences you found out or caught your eye in the last year. And one time I was talking with a client, let's just show all the ridiculous ones I've seen. You know, the deli counter experience. It's like, it's a deli counter. So you have that in name only. Then you do have experiential marketing to make your marketing more experiential. Don't rely upon flat two-dimensional media, less on advertising, more on events, perfectly good application. So that's one trajectory things are going, right? To rely less and less on traditional marketing. Now, in uh, the new preface, we talk about one of the three metrics we put in there is to start keeping track of your advertising to experience ratio, right? That increasingly experiences themselves, ideally revenue generating experiences will create demand to the point that you can rely less and less on an advertising. Uh, we can write a thing about how it's possible to have infinite return on investment with that investment. We can loop back to that if that intrigues you. Um, the other aspect we talk about is there's experientializing operations, what's called customer experience management. That's where the phrase the customer experience comes in. Be careful with the phrase customer experience because sometimes that's just having a very good service. Here's a big distinction we make in the new preface. There's a difference between time well saved and time well spent. Right? So a lot of customer experience is nothing more than getting customers to spend less time with you because they really don't want to. Whereas experiences, people want to spend more time with. So there's also operations, which is making sure what time they do spend with you is enjoyable time and also saving time. Then, of course, is what we really care about, which is experiences as an offering to put a price tag on those experiences. And then finally, digital experience, which is all the above, can be exist in digital form as well. One last point here. One of the ties we place between charging for an experience and experiential marketing, what we like to call marketing experiences, distinction, in other words, you can do experiential marketing and it's for free. You have some event and you hope by having the event you can sell more of your goods and services. Great. But if you have a marketing experience and you charge for it, but if you have a revenue generating event, but you're really doing it as a means of demand creation in lieu of traditional marketing, if you can turn a profit by staging an experience, an event, you have infinite return on investment, right? Because you've made money in the demand creation process. And again, this is where we think more and more dollars, and again, retail banking can rely upon this. Can they rely less and less on their marketing budget because they shift to investment in experiences to create the kind of relationships you're talking about, including investments in retail? It's not a People are like, oh, people don't want to go to bank. Less and less people go to bank. I'm sure that's the trajectory that we're on. But that's not inevitable. One just has to conceive of different ways to get people to spend time face-to-face to discuss their financial needs. Right now, the place is designed for transactions with a little bit of design for conversation with the traditional cubicles where you go sit down with the person across the desk. That whole thing can be rethought. The interesting point is that with financial institutions, we have a whole lot of people holding on to the past. So they will make the reason why they don't make experiences better being that we want people to come to the branch or, geez, what will happen if we make it really easy for people to open accounts, which is a few times they get to see a person? Well, that's where you have to build around the reality of what customer demand is because unfortunately, in a digital world or forcing in a digital world, your competitor scope has expanded tremendously. So everybody compares their experience anywhere with the way they get it at Amazon. Eventually, everybody's going to compare their driving experience for what they get from Tesla. You're going to experience your search experience based on what you would get with Google. 
so that point is it's not just your own industry that is your people are making their assumptions by it's anybody, but think even more broadly than that. If time is the currency of experiences, everybody only has 24 hours a day. And any customer who's spending time in a different experience, they're not spending time with you. you know, and any dollar spent with somebody is a dollar they're not spending with you. Any attention they give to somebody, they're not the attention that's given to you. And you know that's the construct we have for the new hardcover is that you're, the subtitle is competing for customer time, attention, and money. So, Jim, how do people get a hold of your book? Uh, well, we've been talking about Amazon. Obviously, <laughs> you, can, you can hop on the largest online retailer, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, direct from Harvard, uh, if you want to order in bulk, you know, Amazon initially had the book at the full price, but they've come down on the price to try to sell more volume. Um, I'm sure it's on Kindle and so forth for those who go that route. But, yeah, just, you know, any place where you normally get a book. I will say there's some other things. We, we had a, what we call a launch fest, sort of a, a launch party for the thing, and we uh, had a nice gathering at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame here in Cleveland. Yeah, I was in Budapest at that time. Yeah, I wanted to make it. Yep. Although I'm ticked at the Rock Hall for not having Dave Matthews uh, selected. <laughs> I will be here on May 2nd to protest. Um, but uh, despite that, they did a great venue for our event. But you know, we streamed it live, but it's available online. I think go to strategichorizons.com, and it's a modest fee to watch that thing. And and then another interesting resource for people, I think this might be particularly interesting for retail banking, is Joe and I last year with an outfit in South Dakota called uh, Five Four, developed some video-based training for frontline. So what we did is we worked real hard to, to translate the principles of experience economy, but put it in language for a frontline worker. So we don't talk about mass customization and, and customer sacrifice, great concept for management to know. We talk about doing things that are only and exactly what people want. Instead of talking about ex services versus experience, we talk more about it's not just what you do, it's how you do it, because that's the difference between a service and experience. We talk about how to have positive surprise, not negative surprise, not just satisfaction. So it's a five-module thing. Again, that's called On Stage. You can access it via Strategic Horizons or just search on On Stage, Pine and Gilmore training, and I'm sure you'll find it. And uh, people are jumping on and, and doing that now, the, the early feedback. The first buyer was actually from Australia, of all places. But we're getting some good feedback on that. It's a pretty low price point. And, it's, and all it is is just Joe and I talking together and then all kinds of downloadable exercises for your team and so forth and so on. So, hey, the book is good. The book might be more for managers and executives. But I actually think the onstage offering might be the way to go for people who want to, to apply this thinking to their human resources at the branch level. Well, I can just say it's great to have you on the show. It, it's one of these things that people on that are my followers and my listeners – Please do not get uh, swayed by when the original publishing of this book was because every lesson, again, like one-to-one -one future, every lesson in Joe's and Jim's book is applicable today. And if you don't come away with reading any chapter and saying, geez, I've missed something in the way I'm deploying experience, and it doesn't matter what business you're in, you make it very clear that it's not just B2C, it's B2B. It's wealth advisors. It's people that are simply in the marketing field, people in the sales field. There's something to be learned in this. And as I said in the beginning of our interview, if we had gotten it right, there'd be no reason for this book to get republished or have the, uh, the new preface, I should say, in the hardcover. But it's a great book, and I thank you. Thank you very much. Do bear in mind that it is the updated edition. Exactly. It's not the 1990 edition. We worked real hard to refresh it. It was a very interesting exercise. I still have the copy where I highlighted 
examples that have to go out and be substituted. You know, less references to AOL, more references to Google. So the examples are refreshed as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jim. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raise a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.